Okay, so I told you early on that this podcast, it was nothing more than a place for me to sit down and talk with people I found really cool and interesting. This episode was like a dream come true for me. I had the opportunity to sit down with Christina Rossetti. Now, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of her work. She has spent her entire academic career studying Mormon fundamentalism. Her work is respected by academics and Mormon fundamentalists alike. Her work is both uncompromising and fair. In our conversation, we cover how she became interested in Mormon fundamentalism, how she was able to gain access to so many different types of fundamentalists, where she thinks Mormon fundamentalism is ultimately going, and her experiences working to pass the bill here in Utah that would ultimately lead to the decriminalization of plural marriage. That's next on this edition of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me. And it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? So I now humbly ask that if you have means that you'd consider a small donation to the podcast so I can make those investments in equipment and software. If you feel like that's something that you can do, go check out mormonrenegade.com and hit the donate tab. If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. So today on the podcast, I have somebody that I have wanted to talk to since day one. Um, it's, it's a little embarrassing, but I'm probably damn near a fanboy of her work, and, and that is uh, Christina Rossetti. So Christina, I can't tell you how, how uh, excited I am that you're here. I really, I'm, I'm just super excited for this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about fundamentalism. My favorite thing to talk about. It, it has to be. Okay. Real quick. You grew up in California. How do you get to like, not only do I want to know about fundamentalism, I want to be like the go-to in academic circles on fundamentalism. The question of the ages. How did I get here? 
Right, right. <laughs> I actually ask myself that regularly. Do you really? Uh, and the, oh yeah. I mean, oh yeah. And the answer is, you know, I, I have a running joke with my friends that, that, I mean, the answer is I read Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. Okay. And I, I didn't really know what a Mormon was. And I read that my first year of grad school, it was assigned to me by the woman who became my advisor, Amanda Lucia, because I was interested in the 19th century. And I was interested in communitarianism. So United Order is like a logical thing to look at. And she assigns me rough stone rolling. And I was, I, I, I don't know if you've read it. I'm sure you I have. have. Yep. So I opened it at my parents' kitchen table and I read it in two days. Holy I, cow. That's a big book. I, 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 it, it, it is a big book. I, have, I mean, I have told Richard Bushman the story now <laughs> twice, um, but I read, I, I couldn't put it down. I needed to know everything about Joseph Smith. I needed to know everything about this idea of restoration, this religion that people were willing to do anything for. And it was so foreign to me as someone who wasn't like, didn't, you know, you know, Mormons say, I know the church is true. Um, as someone who has never been able to say that sentence, I was just like, what is this? And so I, you know, I went to the library, I went on Amazon and I bought, I got through both avenues, every book on Mormonism. I was just like, I need to know everything. And I mean, I obviously don't know everything, but I, I got, I mean, I tried and my advisor told me, you know, you want to study living people. Why don't you go to a church or an institute or something? Like there's a building right on campus. And I tell this story a lot that I went in and I was disappointed in a way because it wasn't rough stone rolling. Right. Um, and I mean, of course it wasn't like, what did I... <laughs> What did I think was going to happen? I was going to walk in and everyone's living United Order and like living the living polygamy? Like, no. Um, but it felt like this jarring moment of like, I don't know what a Mormon is. Like, what is a Mormon? And, you know, long story short, through a series of events, I met fundamentalists. And I met something akin to rough stone rolling in the fundamentalist movement. And I learned about, you know, Joseph Musser, who I'm so honored to get to write his biography now. And I just learned about these people that are trying so hard to live a life like this book that captivated me uh, when I was just like a brand new shiny grad student. Wow. So yeah, you really got thrown in on the deep end. I mean, you went from zero to rough stone rolling. That's going to do it, right? And then you try to follow that up with visiting some some mainstream Mormons. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, this looks nothing like that. But oh, yeah. to be to be fair, though, I, I can kind of identify with that, right? Because I'm a convert to the LDS church, right? And I'm also a pretty voracious reader. So I get in and I, you know, and to be fair, I probably the seeds of fundamentalism were sown even before I was baptized because uh, our local pastor who my mom had us sign up with, he, uh, when he found out I was going to go LDS, he's like, well, you need to read this. And he gave me excerpts from the Journal of Discourses. So I take it to my missionaries and it blows their mind. And then eventually it works its way up to the old stake patriarch who've, who's heard about all this and has obscure books. And so I think those seeds were always there, even from my initial. But 
I can remember those feelings of disappointment at times, right? Especially when I heard stuff that was not quite factually correct from the pulpit on Sunday in an LDS ward, right? I'm like, mm, but is it though? For reals? And, it, and like it, when one of the, I mean, one of the like, what you, it's so true that one man's anti-Mormon literature is another man's proselyting pamphlet. Like, absolutely. Like anti-Mormon literature is just Mormon fundamentalism. Like, yeah. Did you like, did you know? I mean, I remember being down in Manti at the miracle pageant with a group of fundamentalist missionaries and the evangelicals looked at them and was, and were like, did you know that Brigham Young taught Adam is God? And they were just like, yeah, yep. I, yeah, we, we believe that still. And like the evangelical proselyte, like didn't know what to do with this kid that was just like, yeah. And I still believe that. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I've often said that, 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 the the best solution to to the folks who you know protest outside of temple square during conference or when they were holding the pageant was have a group of fundamentalists down there because i'll just shut it down way fast i mean they got nothing at that point right when you're like oh yeah no and and i totally buy it too I'm like hook line and sinker they're like well hell there I, I got nothing left i'm going home so yeah yeah so yeah, I mean, yeah. And I'm in similar, I mean, I'm still friends with my institute teacher on Facebook. Um, I hope he hasn't muted me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was very similar to your journey of going the LDS route and then being like, wait, but there's more. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Although I kind of got tossed into the deep end too. Like I said, I, uh, I got, I was practicing plural marriage before I had done an in-depth study of Adam God or any of the other stuff before I knew about, you know, how, just how significant the temple changes were. And so this whole, I'm, I'm trying to go through and get my bearings and yeah, no, I, I can totally, it's impressive that you digested rough stone rolling and then we're, we're like, give me more. That's, that's nuts too. My so, next one was magic worldview. That was okay. book number two. Book okay. Two. By Quinn, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you, you get into it and you're in college at any point while you were in college, did you think, Oh yeah, this is something I'm going to keep going down. I mean, was there a point at which you realized you were kind of hooked? Oh yeah, it was, it was, I mean, so this was in grad school. So I, I like had to come up with pretty quickly what I was going to study for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I jumped into a PhD program really young um, I would have done things differently in hindsight, but, you know, I was 23 and I had to figure out what the rest of my life was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I read Rough Stone Rolling and I was like, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> like, I guess I'll study Mormonism forever. Um, it was, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it any, I wouldn't do that any differently, but yeah, I mean, I, I got, I got there and I knew, I knew that that was what it was going to be. And I had a lot of, um, ideas for what that would look like. It has gone very different now. Um, originally I was studying living people, but you know, the 1930s to sixties are a wild time. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of really been my focus now, but I mean, there's also like just so much about the doctrinal development of fundamentalism that people don't know. Um, and just like, you know, everyone kind of associates fundamentalism with polygamy, but there's so much more. Right. And so it just became a love of mine of like, doing deep dives into really particular doctrines that people are not familiar with. No, you, you raise a good point that, that plural marriage is a real small part of fundamentalism. I shouldn't say small part. 
it's it's a huge part, but there is so much more, right? And I remember as I'm sorting as as I'm sorting through it, I remember looking at both um, my wife Amber and the other woman who was with us at the time, thinking, oh, "Shoot, we got a lot to do." Only I didn't say "shoot." I was a lot more explicit. I was like, "There is so much here. We don't we don't even begin to understand." And so I, I could, yeah, no, you're right. 30s to 60s is a wild time. So you get, you kind of get, you know, figure out, okay, this is what I want to do. My next question is, you've been able to gain just unprecedented access to a lot of different groups and people. How did you manage that? Because by nature, fundamentalists, I've noticed, are very cautious, right? At best cautious, if not closed off. So how, how were you able to approach that? It's one thing for a guy like me who's like, look, I want to know more and I believe this. Can you teach me? Right. That's that's a different thing than saying, you know, maybe I want to do an ethnography on you or, you know, I want to, you know, uh, I just want to study it. How how did you gain that access? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I think there's a lot of I think it's a lot of moving parts. I mean, I met members of the Peterson group who, um, when I first, I mean, they're very online now, they have missionaries. Um, when I first met them, I would say they were less online, but they were still pretty open. Like they were accepting converts. They were interested in people joining. They wanted to tell people about the group. So they were some of the first people I met. Um, now, a lot of people meet them, of course. A lot of people meet fundamentalists and never get you know, invited to Nevada. Right. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think the big thing is I never, I was always very honest with what I was doing. I, there was never, and I think, I mean, of course they had to believe me. People had to believe me that I was honest about what I was doing, but there, I never, and still to this day, like I've never lied about my intentions or um, what I was doing. I always was just like, I have no intention of joining. Um, but I think there's multiple stories here that the world needs to know. And I'd like to tell them if you would trust me to do that. Um, and of course, people, again, had to be willing to let me come in their house and meet their children and like talk to them. And that's scary when there's like this random Gentile girl from California, like showing up at your home. Um, but I think, I think it was a mix of just, and honestly, I think the other thing is people don't ask to. Um, and that sounds strange, but I mean, I don't think most people are like, oh, you're a fundamentalist Mormon. Can I come over? <laughs> that sounds wild, but I spent a good portion of my life just asking people if I could come over to their house um, and ask them like really personal questions, which again, not everyone wants that, um, but some people were willing to. And so I think the big thing is I was willing to just be like, hey, I, can I come over? And I did that with a few groups. Um, some of them, you know, turned into friendships, others didn't. Um, but I think I was, I, I was honest about what I was doing. I was willing to ask to come over and people were willing to like gamble that I wasn't going to do anything to harm their families. Um, and on the contrary, um, I mean, my experiences with fundamentalists led me to lobby for SB 102, the bill that mm -hmm. decriminalized polygamy in Utah. Um, and so I think, I think my continued actions showed that I wasn't a jerk. <laughs> at, least I hope, at least I hope not. Right. You, no, no. And, and 
and to be honest, that's one of the things I've always respected about about the work you did do is that and, and continue to do is that while you're not going to sugarcoat anything, you're, you're going to just kind of call balls and strikes as you see them. Right. And, and I can kind of get not kind of I can definitely get with with that idea, because let's face it, I mean. I would rather have someone like yourself out there trying to tell this story than maybe somebody who has an axe to grind, right? There's enough out there with, with what Jeff's has done to make the lives of fundamentalists hard as it is. So, and that's one of the reasons I respect a, a lot of what you've done is because I felt like it was fair. So in this process of, of gaining access to these groups, was and you don't have to name names. Was there ever a point at which you thought where, where maybe you were stonewalled a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and I mean there's groups that I never asked to study. I mean, I don't I don't study the FLDS. That's kind of a blanket. It's something I don't do. Um, I mean, I you have to talk about them when you talk about the history, but I don't I don't study them. They don't talk to outsiders, you know, most of them, there's a select group that do, um, but most FLDS do not talk to outsiders. And so that was something I just knew like was not going to happen. Um, so I didn't try. Um, there was one group I did meet with um, a man who leads it. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it didn't feel like he wanted to continue talking to me um, for whatever reason. I mean, you know, and that's, if people don't want to continue talking to me, I don't really press for it, but um, there's definitely been groups that are more closed off and for, and fair, right? I mean, like this is a religion. Mormon fundamentalism is a marginalized religious tradition. It's a minority tradition and it's a criminalized religious tradition. Um, this, this is not a religion that you can risk having a cop show up and take your kids because that has happened many times in the history of this religion. So for good reason. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been people that don't want to talk to me. Have <laughs> Which in, in any of that field wild research? Because I'm crazy. <laughs> in, in any of that, uh, in any of your field research, did you ever feel like, oh, hell, I shouldn't be where I'm at right now? Like maybe you were a little bit in danger at all? I wouldn't say danger. Um, I mean, people who know me and love me and who looked at situations from the outside might be like, no, that wasn't a good idea. Um, I don't think I ever felt in danger. Did I feel uncomfortable? Yes. I think that's probably a better way to say it. Okay. What was, as you're doing this research and, and you're talking to all these different individuals, right? Families, uh, groups, what was, what were some of the things that shocked you that stood out to you that maybe you weren't prepared for? Ooh. Um, I mean, the hardest one is I wasn't prepared to, I wasn't prepared to become friends with people. Um, and not because I didn't think I would, but just because, you know, like you're in anthropology classes and you learn about, you just go in, you get your data and you leave. Um, and anthropology textbooks fail to remind you that you can become friends with people at any point, at any juncture, you can decide that you're friends with people. Um, and so I became friends with a lot of people who, I mean, I would consider them friends. I would, I would hope that they would call me the same. Um, and I became friends with a lot of people who left fundamentalism, which is a painful place to be if you grew up in, this, in some of these groups and then you leave. Um, and so I think the hardest part 
ultimately was hearing stories that are hard, stories that are abusive and painful. I mean, fundamentalism for all the things that, you know, I'm again, good friends with a lot of good fundamentalist polygamous people, but for every one of those stories, I also have stories that are really hard and really abusive and in many cases violent. And I wasn't, I don't think I was prepared to have to sit through that and sit through hearing a lot of those stories um, and becoming friends with people who went through really horrendous situations. Um, I've talked very openly that one of my good friends um, died. He was, um, his name was Roy Jeffs. Um, and he died a few years ago. And I, I wasn't prepared to have to do that, right? Like you, you don't think when you decide to study a group of people, you don't think that you're going to end up at a funeral at some point, but sometimes you do. And so I, I wasn't prepared for that part of studying a group of people is having that group of people not, I mean, Mormon, the Mormon fundamentalists I know are not just subjects to me, right? Um, they're people that I'm friends with, that I talk to, that, you know, I love so many of the women that I've gotten to know. Um, and so I wasn't prepared for what that comes with a lot of the time. And a lot of the time it's not, <laughs> it's not fun. Right. So th there's two things I want to dovetail that response off of because because i find it interesting how is it that you are able to even you know become friends with folks but yet still still be able because you i would think you'd have to maintain a certain arm's length distance so you could tell the truth right like i have a good friend right not a mormon fundamentalist i'll go to the map for that guy every day of the week right until he proves me wrong i'm like that's my guy i'm real you know the, the typical ride and die kind of guy, right? How is it you can, can, can have that, that friendship and yet maintain that level of, I don't know, almost that scientific view where you're just studying? How does that work? Uh, I don't, I mean, my advisor, um, she's joked <laughs> um, that like I went into the field and never came home. Okay. And that's true. Um, it's true. And I mean, there are, there are absolutely cons to that. Um, I think one of the things that I, when I kind of think of my work that I appreciate about the work is that I, that I do is I don't, I'm not going to lie for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to like, not tell a story because you don't want, like, I, I don't have those investments. Um, now if that means, you know, if this is a situation of like, I mean, I don't know. I can't think of an example where that would be different, but I mean, the law of purity article that we were talking about off air um, is probably the best example of that. The law of purity is not talked about in a lot of fundamentalist groups. It's history is not talked about. It's not talked about. And I heard about it and I was like, well, I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> and I got, a, I got a lot of eyebrow raises of people being like, what? And I was like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I mean, I wouldn't have done it in a way that was hurtful or anything. Like no one said, please don't. And that would have been a different conversation. No one said, don't do that. Um, but I was like, I wasn't willing to like be part of this, like not talking about something just because I noticed no one was talking about it. Uh, and so I wrote about the law of purity. And, and, and it was just fine, it, which I've read the article. It's a great article. I mean, it's, <laughs> It's you, you did a great job in it. I, I don't I don't see an issue with it. I actually have a funny story about it. Um, I was at the BYU Maxwell Institute 
um, for a summer seminar on religion and science. And we had to write about something sciencey. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to write about this thing, uh, which I'm sure. It used and, you know, I actually, I invite, I invited um, a Ben Schaefer. I invited him to, because I did a public talk at the, for the Maxwell Institute um, on my research. And I invited Ben. I mean, I was very open about what I, I was, I didn't pretend I wasn't writing about this. Um, and so at the Joseph F. Smith building <laughs> presented on the law of purity, um, which was an experience. But I remember when I first heard about it, I was driving to Tonopah with the missionaries, the, the uh, Peterson group missionaries. And the reason I decided this was something I wanted to write about, which I think is representative of the question you asked, um, is they were just, I was, I was interested in the temple recommend, how they do that. And one of them, he was kind of a new missionary. <laughs> And he was just like going over the stuff and he was like, oh, and do you keep the law of purity? And I noticed the other two were kind of like, what? No, what are you doing? Oh. Um, and I was like, oh, what's that? And I thought, and I was like, oh, is that just the way that you say the law of chastity? Is that the same thing? And one of them was like, no, you're going to have to ask a woman in the group. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, and, and of course, like the more this car ride is going, the more it was like, well, now I need to know everything. Like <laughs> now I really want to know. Um, and so we get there I, um, and I'm staying with, this was my first time ever going out there. Um, no, this was my second time going out there. So the woman that I stayed with, she, you know, knew me. We had had conversations. She's great. Um, and she was like cleaning up after dinner. And I was like, Hey, can I ask you something? What's the law of purity? And I thought she was going <laughs> to drop the enchilada sauce that she was holding. And she was like, who told you about this? And I was like, the missionary. <laughs> and so, I mean, she was a great, I didn't, cause I, again, I didn't know what this was. I was just like innocently, like asking anyone who would answer about this thing that I, again, I didn't know that I was asking about people's sex life. Like, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Um, she was a great sport. She, you know, told me the, the basics of the doctrine. And uh, which for those who don't know is a doctrine that comes from the Musser line about um, sex during procreation and gestation, uh, sex during gestation and lactation periods. And um, I was like, well, I need to know everything about this now. And so I found out everything about it, um, which was great because I mean, I was able, I gave it to a few people. I talked to a few people and I knew of at least a couple of women who were interested to know the history of the doctrine that they, you know, are part of a group that practices it. To my knowledge, the Peterson group is the only group that does um, to, for, I mean, generally the AUB has not. Uh, and I actually talked to um, at a book signing uh, for Craig Foster and Marianne Watson's book um, Marianne <laughs> was, uh, like her husband was there and she was like, Christina wrote about the law of purity. And he was like, oh, <laughs> oh. so, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's great. He's, you know, like all these people in the story are great. Um, but like, it was just like this moment of like, who, who's talking to you about this? <laughs> like, you're not, you're a gentle, like who is talking to you about this? Like in detail enough for you to write a, like an article about it. Um, <laughs> But I think that's kind of representative is that like, I, I was always very, I hope that I was always very kind in asking about questions. I was always curious. I was not malicious in asking, um, but I was also like going to find out 
the history. <laughs> yeah, they're right. And and let's let's and good on those folks for for talking to you, right? Because if you have to go look for it, who knows what you're going to find, right? I mean, you could have found. I'm sure there are all sorts of things out there that that you know could have phrased it inaccurately or had an axe to grind or whatever. So at least good on them for talking to you about it. I mean, I mean, one of the things that was so interesting, I mean, I'll plug a few people who are great. Um, Ann Wild, <laughs> I, I reached out to Ann Wild. Um, she's like, a, you know, an older woman in the fundamentals mm-hmm. movement. She's married, she's still to Ogden, Ogden Kraut. Kraut. Yeah. Um, and so like my asking her was probably weird, but she was such, she was great. And she um, gave me a really tiny white book um called the higher law of chastity published by gems publishing that talked a little bit about it she was great um in helping me with that and then if anyone's interested in the law of purity ria allred rule and allred sister she went hard for the doctrine like if there's an apologist for the law of purity it is ria allred she wrote a book called polluted fountains (laughs) about like all of the disastrous polluted practices in like dating and marriage and she is ride or die for the, she was ride or die for the law of purity so if anyone's interested in like the primary sources real all reds your girl really i didn't even know that book existed but now i want to go read it so <laughs> all right i'm gonna transition into something a little heavier okay and with the under the banner of heaven coming out and the one about Jeff's on Netflix. And I I feel like there's almost this fundamentalist moment, right? Where as fundamentalists, we either get to get up now and tell the story or we're going to forever be dictated to by what's going on right now. You talk about seeing and, and I know this is a hard question, and I apologize, but you talked about seeing, um, hearing about violence within these families. In your opinion, do you think that Mormon fundamentalism, because of its very nature or whatever, do you think it, it's a violent religion, so to speak? No. I mean, is it inherently violent? Like, I mean, that's, I mean, what I've told a few people about this is I think Mormonism kind of right now owns the like drama genre of TV, but Catholicism has owned the horror genre for a while. (laughs) Right. Um, And I mean, the reality, and I'm very open about my own tradition is Roman Catholicism has a problem with sex abuse, like full stop. I'm not going to pretend that's not true. Um, It would be a joke if I looked at you and pretended that that wasn't true. Does that mean that all Catholicism is that? No. Does that mean it's there and I should talk about it? Yeah. And I think Mormon fundamentalism needs to do the same thing. I, I agree with you 100%. I, and, and part of it, I find it one of those things where I, I kind of get where, where it comes from, right? Not the violence part, but the part about let's just stay quiet and let's stay under the radar and maybe... Maybe at best they'll, you know, laugh at us a little bit, right? The the issue with that is that when you do that, you're kind of forcing yourself back into the shadows. 
And it's in the shadows that all that nasty crap keeps happening over and over and over. And I'm, I tend, and granted, I'm a libertarian by nature, right? I tend to be very like, you do you, bro. Throw those doors open. Let's talk to people. Let's. If there was, if there was one stereotype about Mormon fundamentalists. <laughs> right. I've never met a non, I've never met a non-libertarian one. Really? Really? I mean, I'm sure there I, are, I, but. I guess, I my, guess that, my... that probably, I guess you probably kind of have to have that in order to do, do some of the the stuff that, that we want to do. I, I get that, but yeah, no, I, I tend to be like, just throw those doors open. Let's have the conversation because if, if we as fundamentalists don't have this conversation and, and we're not involved, we're going to let everybody else um, dictate to us what it is. And, yeah, and I mean, that's why like when, like when Cody Brown and his family went on TLC, like that's hard, but like, that's hard. Um, but they were like, we're going to tell our story. I mean, the same with, with Joe Darger and his family, the Darger family, like they were like, well, we're going to, we're going to be us in public and we're going to tell our story and we're going to be who we are. Um, and having family. And I mean, Enoch Foster and his family down at the rock. Like, I think, I think that's important. I think fundamentalist Mormons to the, to the extent that it's safe for their family, of course, I mean, in certain States it's safer than others, of course. In Utah now, um, as of 2020, that is safe to do. Um, but I mean, there was a lot of discourse online about Mormons should be telling Mormon stories. Most people who were saying that were LDS, but fundamentalists can and should um, tell their story for sure. Warren told a very loud story um, and other people need to now tell a story. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And that's, and, and I, I think that just helps to dispel all the rumors, all, all the crap that's not true. And then, and this is where I lose some folks. It also maybe causes us as fundamentalists to reflect on ourselves a little bit going, okay, is this, is this particularly right? I mean, should we be looking, is this a tradition? Is this a doctrine? What is this? And then you know, maybe have some honest conversations with ourselves as well. I, I think that that's vitally needed as well at, at this juncture. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think especially, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in like the history of certain doctrines um, in fundamentalism. I mean, the priesthood ban is something that Moroni Jessup and I are going to be talking about at Sunstone um, about when did it become a fundamental? Like when did that become something part and parcel to the fundamentalist movement? Um, most doctrines in fundamentalism, I don't want to say most, but many doctrines in fundamentalism don't just, I mean, they're not these lot, like, you know, fundamentalism has this, this belief in like doing exactly what Brigham, no one is really doing everything Brigham Young did, right? Everyone is doing some variation. Um, I mean, something like placement marriage, which Warren became notorious for, people are watching this on Keep Sweet right now. Um, and placement marriage doesn't emerge as something they're really talking about until the 1940s, um, when they start happening under John Y. Barlow. This isn't a long-standing tradition. Um, and so I think having those hard conversations of what is the history of what we do? Why do we do what we do? Can it change? Can it not? Um, I think those are hard conversations, but that's a healthy thing to do for any group of people. 
Yeah, I think a little bit of self-reflection goes a long ways and, and have some honest conversations. And those are tough to have, right? I mean, and to be honest with you, not everybody in fundamentalism is ready to have that conversation because if it's a public conversation, being in the public isn't, I isn't really what they want to do, right? I mean, a lot of these folks still bear, I don't know, those, those societal scars from things like Short Creek and that sort of thing, which really, you know, drove home this fact, you know, you be quiet and, you know, you keep this under wraps or, you know, we're going to get, our kids are going to, are in danger sort of stuff. So I, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things. Just out of curiosity, what, what was your thought on Under the Banner of Heaven? <sighs> I liked it. I know that that's a controversial take. <laughs> um, I liked it. I mean, I liked it. I, so I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, I watch a lot of really trash TV. I watch 90 Day Fiance pretty exclusively. <laughs> um, so I don't watch a lot of like good TV. So when everyone was talking about it's not written well, I'm like, I don't know. I have no point of reference. I literally watch people dating across the world. Like I don't have a point of reference for good television. Um, but I was interested in the story it told about Mormonism. Um, and I thought it told the story of multiple Mormonisms really well. I think especially a lot of people were kind of like, what? At episode like six, when Dan goes to meet John Bryant and there's a baptism scene and there's this like, like scandalous kiss in a hot tub and everyone is like, what the hell? Um, and I remember watching it and I was like, they did John Bryant really well. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and I mean, and they could have done it a lot more salacious if they had shown his temple endowment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so- I was impressed with the way that that's Mormonism in the show. So is Ron Lafferty, but so is Brenda. And right. I was really, I was really happy with the way, I mean, I really loved the finale, how they told Brenda's story as this heroic, as a one mighty and strong in her own right. Um, and so I, I really liked how they told the story of Mormonism. You know, the big critique is it argues that Mormonism is inherently violent. Um, I, I don't like the book. I don't like Krakauer's book. Um, and so I understand the concern there, but I think it, I mean, I think it told the story well. If you don't like the true crime genre, you're not going to like it, but you, you also don't have to like it. You're allowed to not like it. You know, I, I watched every episode and the one I was most nervous about is when they were showing the temple endowment. Right. That one, I was like, oh, here we go. This is where it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And to be fair, I felt like they did it as tastefully as you could do it. Right. I mean, they they didn't go into great detail. They went into enough. And let's face it. Now, with, you know, guys like Mike Norton that go out and they record the ceremony and put it on online. I mean, if if we're looking to try to keep that under wraps, I get it. But it's out there. So I felt like they did a good job in, in, in showing it, but yet being respectful. I liked how they did, you know, integrate some history in there, right? Right down to the dream mine. They mentioned the dream mine in, in an episode. And I thought, you know, that's, you know, yeah, I, I felt like they did all right with it. My biggest yeah, concern. I mean, I, oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I know I'm biased in that one of my, one of my best friends was a historical consultant for it. Um, but what I think a lot of people 
didn't realize is the other historic consultant, Troy Williams, um, he investigated the AUV. So this isn't, this is, these aren't people who like don't know fundamentalism. I mean, Troy was interested in joining when he got home from his LDS mission. So I think that's also kind of an interesting component is that these are people who like were at least at one point compelled by, by fundamentalism. Right. Yeah, no, I, I felt like all in all, it, it was fairly well done. My, my biggest fear, and it, and it was, it was a concern I never anticipated having, if, if I'm being honest with you, it was some family or uh, some guy sitting on his couch who's been a devout member of the LDS church his whole life, and he starts getting obscure Mormon doctrine thrown at him, and he doesn't know what's happening, right? And, and that maybe causes a faith crisis, because I, I don't want to see the LDS church go away. I, I, I really enjoyed my time there, and that was my biggest fear, is that they were going to hear all these obscure Mormon old school doctrines that they didn't know what to do with. And so I, I had an episode with Ben Schaefer where we talked a little bit about that. Right. And felt like, and again, it was one of those times where I felt like maybe this is the time now as fundamentalists, we got to step forward and just kind of be like, don't lose your crap. Let's sit down and let's talk about this a little bit before, before you make a rash decision, because even though I felt like it did, it, it did a fairly good job. There's so, mu there's so much to those doctrines that just aren't talked about because you don't have time, right? I mean, even though it's a six-episode series, you don't have time to do a deep dive on Mormon doctrine to, no, to sort I, that out. No. I mean, I do think, I mean, two of the scenes that really struck me as being perfectly done, and they're small, the first one was when Dan gets a copy of The Peacemaker, um, and he, like, finds it at like, as, like, at, like, a thrift store or something, and how many people do we know who find a copy of truth magazine at like some used bookstore and encounters fundamentalism and joins right i mean that is a tale as old as time um mm -hmm. that is a especially in like the 50s and 60s i mean and 80s right i mean the story of ron and dan Lockley, i mean that is a tale as old as time and so how they depicted that i thought was incredible but the other one and it stick it is it sticks with me was when Ron, no, Dan, one of them, Dan, Ron, ooh, uh, leaves his disciplinary council. And he had just gotten excommunicated and he looks at the camera and smiles. And the moment of, oh, you have nothing to lose now. Right. Like, and I, I think, and I was, and when I saw that, I was like, I hope, because I get asked a lot. <laughs> Um, I get asked a lot by LDS people, what, like, how can we stop people from joining fundamentalism? And my answer is always don't excommunicate them. Right. Like, don't turn them into, don't turn them into fundamentalists, right? If you don't want them to be it. Um, and so the way they depicted that, I mean, and, and I don't want that to sound like I'm saying anyone who's excommunicated becomes a violent fundamentalist. That is absolutely not true. Um, Joseph Musser was excommunicated and became not a violent fundamentalist. Um, but that was a really significant moment of, oh, like his membership in the LDS church was, was the last thing, like tethering him to any kind of reality. It, yeah, it was the last firewall, right? Before he right. went and did what he did. 
And and to be fair, not everybody that 99.9% of people who get excommunicated don't turn right. into murderous religious zealots, right? That but but if if your goal is to um prevent fundamentalism, you're hundred percent right. Don't don't turn them into fundamentalisms by by throwing them out. And and that's the one thing I remember from my days in the LDS church that I got. There's only one time I got called into the bishop's office before I went in to say I'm done. And that was because I had uh, I taught some stuff out of the Journal of Discourses. And it was pretty mild. It was pretty mild, right? But I was I was given this talk and uh, that old stake patriarch, I went to him and I was like, you got anything on like, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was like on the establishment of Zion. And she's like, oh, yeah, come on in. And he shows me his journal of discourses. I'm like, oh, this is great stuff, right? And I I get up there. I'd only been a member for about five years. And I'm like, just spouting it off. And I just start seeing shift, you know, people shift. And, and then, you know, I kind of glance behind me and the bishop's like smiling. But you can tell there's this look of absolute horror, like, don't don't go any further please just stop just stop right oh no and it, and it was the establishment of zion it wasn't even like the name no. of adam's wife no it wasn't it was nothing like that it was but i mentioned jod and oh man it, you could almost hear a collective gasp right and i'm like well i'm in it now so i'm just gonna keep going <laughs> right like get this out Oh no. And that was the, that my was brother the, in Christ. I could have told you. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I remember I did have I did have a talk with that old patriarch where I was like, you kind of set me up, bro. Right? Like you you kind of you can he's like you handled it really well, kid. You you did you did good. I'm like you suck. I appreciate the time you took with me, but you suck, right? But was he was he like LDS through and through or was it LDS with a wink and a nod yeah yeah because like what I mean what state patriarch is handing someone journal of discourses to teach out of so I'm trying not to give away too much here because I never want to put anyone in any compromising positions but we were in a very small rural area not in Utah and so where you say we remember that time where you know hey this isn't rough stone rolling or this isn't what you read about in some ways it kind of was at times where i was at right where it would get real close right and it was just because i think it was this tight-knit group of lds folks who had a lot of older folks in it and um it, it was like the old um plural marriage thing where it'd be like we don't practice that but it's a true principle right kind of a thing right and so (laughs) it was it was a lot like that right where you couldn't get anyone to say it from the stand but if you went to somebody's house and they were more than willing to have those conversations with you or like the the big tell is when uh like the, the way that you know is when people are like i sustain the president of the church Nelson is the president of the church of the church of the <laughs> yep. I see what you're doing there. Yep. I, do you think he's the president of the priesthood though? Silence. Like, yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. No, I, I, in some ways I'm very thankful that I joined the LDS church where I was right. Because I had a lot of older men 
who were willing to have real honest conversations. So, and that was back in 95, right? And so when the internet gets huge and really 95, the internet was just coming online. I mean, you're talking about dial up with the old to just get online, right? And the pictures would load very slowly. About 2003 or four is the first time I can really remember the, the internet with a lot of salacious material. And to me, I felt almost inoculated, I guess would be the right term. I didn't know how to phrase it then, but I'm like, well, of course that's, that's there, right? I mean, when people got freaked out because they found out Joseph Smith was a polygamist, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's been there the whole time. And I had to, I had to tone that back. I remember I was in an elders quorum presidency once where I was like, you didn't know that, bro? Like, where, where you been, right? And so I, I realized I had to dial that back a little bit and be like, okay, not everyone got got the memo i guess so um no, but i remember i remember a woman and i remember a woman in institute saying that polygamy started when the pioneers were crossing the plains and i was like oh yeah the other one that i like is when they say that polygamy was around just because all a bunch of the men got killed right that's right. that's that's the other favorite one i was like mm, no not according to everything else i no, and also not according to 132. Right. Like 132 paints a very clear picture of what celestial marriage is. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've also been hanging out with fundamentals for too long, but I'm like, well, what else do you think <laughs> celestial marriage is, if not the principle? Right. Absolutely. So yeah, I yeah, I feel very fortunate that I was raised if you will in my LDS upbringing in that small town because there were just people willing to talk about all the stuff that you normally wouldn't get um I want to go back to maybe kind of your 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 academic career here a little bit as you're sorting through some of this I imagine you come across all sorts of stuff as far as teachings right how what what kind of process do you use to determine what's um, tradition and what's doctrine? Uh, I mean, you're asking a girl who's a Roman Catholic built on the twin pillars of scripture and tradition. Um, and so that's a hard, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't believe in the truth claims of Mormonism broadly defined. Um, and so I don't have an investment in that, like a personal investment in the same way that a lot of people do. And so, and also, I mean, that coupled with my being Catholic and like being part of a religion that like goes hard with tradition, um, I don't look at tradition negatively. And so it's, it's hard to parse out why that would matter or what matters. I mean, but the other thing, I don't know, I guess to kind of just say it doesn't matter, which sounds bad, but Mormonism is also a religion that has like the windows of heaven are open. Prophets are still speaking. The canon in a lot of groups, the canon is still being added to. So it doesn't matter if it's just tradition, if the prophet said it, right? I mean, something technically, right? In Mormon, in Mormonism, something Rulon Allred said matters just as much as something Brigham Young said, like technically, right? Like that's, right. that is supposed to be the idea. Like if the priesthood is unchanged, if the priesthood is the power of God on earth, if it is 
how the world was created, if it is the power by which, you know, the, the sea was split, then what it shouldn't be different. And so in my mind, when I look at that, I'm like, well, maybe it's tradition, but also Rulin already said it. Right. Right. And, and I mean, and, but then, but then the, the harder question, the harder question then is which prophet said it, that ends up being the harder one, because if Jim Harmston said it, less people are going to give that credibility than if Rulin Allred did, which is going to get less care than if Joseph Musser said it. Right. No, that makes sense. I could see that. So with that said, where, where it's hard to parse out what's tradition and what's doctrine, because as we were talking before, right, about having those internal debates, there's got to be some way where, where that, that definition can be had. Um, because if, 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 if we can't separate tradition from doctrine, we're kind of in some trouble, right? Because then there's all sorts of things that we can say, well, yeah, we do that because we've always done that. And, and, then you, and then you become the great and abominable and you are welcome to join. We take converts. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Extent, I'll put that. That's the extent of my missionary work for my people. That's awesome. Well, that that's pretty mild compared to to other things I've seen. So good on you. Um, where do you see fundamentalism heading? Because I do feel like fundamentalism's at a crossroads. I feel like we're we're in a moment now where there's some decisions that have to be made. I. I see the independent movement growing um, for many reasons. I think that's a hard, I think, I think independent Mormon fundamentalism, I don't want to like put my stamp of approval on one thing or another, but independent Mormon fundamentalism, I think makes sense historically, given what fundamentalism was originally trying to do. The Council of Friends was pretty gung-ho on not starting a church. Um, I mean, and whether or not things change at a certain point and the church goes into apostasy, that can be debated among different groups. Um, so I think their idea has a historic grounding that this newer focus on establishing churches doesn't. Um, and I think a lot of that is keeping a church together is hard. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. it is <laughs> like, what? Um and so because of that, because of people like Warren, because of concern for how, how power works um, historically in a lot of these groups, um, I see the independent movement growing. Um, I see if families are going to become fundamentalist, I kind of foresee them deciding to just kind of do it on their own. Um, I think if you read, you know, like the Willie School of the Prophets, which I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess most people aren't reading those, <laughs> like the minutes from the School of the Prophets. I don't know. If you're going to do that, I mean, or like if you're going to read like Musser in that era, um, I think a conclusion would be to just become an independent, practice polygamy, you know, try to do consecration with your neighbor. I don't know. However, independents are doing it nowadays. Uh, the downside is you don't have a temple yet. <laughs> um, but I, I, th I think that's kind of going to be the way that fundamentalism ultimately goes. Um, now, what does that mean for Centennial Park? What does that mean for the Apostolic United Brethren? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think they'll, I think they'll continue to exist. Of course, this isn't me like casting a, you're going to disappear. Sure. I don't think that's true. Um, sure. But I think if I were to have to say, 
what people are going to be gravitating toward. I think independent fundamentalism is kind of what I foresee happening. Right. And do you get, do you get a feeling from your research? Are those movements growing? I mean, is, is the independent route growing? I mean, are there people leaving the LDS church? Are they leaving other groups to, to be independent? Is there anything that you can see in your research that would point that out one way or another? I mean, that's a hard question because I think independent fundamentalism in a lot of ways is still is still in the 1930s and 40s in that in, in just in the fact that people don't feel like they have to leave the church to be an independent fundamentalist, right? In, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, people aren't leaving the LDS church if they don't get forced out. They're just doing, they're like meeting with the priesthood council, but then they're also going to church on Sunday. And like, you just don't ask questions and it's just, you just do your thing. Um, and so I think that the families that go that way aren't necessarily leaving the church. I know, I know families that are, and people who, until they, for one reason or another, have to leave or are kicked out of the LDS church, they're LDS, but then they also think Adam is God and maybe are considering polygamy. Um, and so, I mean, I, like, I think those families are more common than not. And, and of course, they're not counted in the number of how many fundamentalists there are. Um, but I would say that that's a lot more common of an experience than we give it credit for. You know, I, I can even speak to that because when, when I started living plural marriage, I went to church with both my wives. I was in the elders quorum presidency. How did you do, how did you do that? <sighs> to this day, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. Did you like, what did you, I mean, I think, so one of the things that I, in terms, like one of the reasons why, I mean, I argued for the decriminalization of polygamy for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that I thought it was so sad that women I knew who looked at themselves as wives and mothers and even like queens and priestesses were pretending to be a babysitter to like avoid, like that killed me. It killed me to know that women were, that and men were having to pretend not to be the father of their children. It, it angered me. I mean, I remember, I remember the first time I went to a, the, the Peterson group. I mean, that's the name of the group. Um, and these two little girls ran up to me and one girl was just like, hi, who are you? You know, they're little, they're young mm -hmm. girls. And like, I'm coming into their home, right? They're not. And so their guard is everyone's guard is down. Like I'm in there, I'm in their place. Like this is, they live here. Um, and you know, rookie mistake. I was like, Oh, who are your parents? Because I didn't know right. them, but I, I knew a lot of the adults. And one of the little girls said, my mom is so-and-so my other mom, and the first little girl like punched her arm and was oh. like, you don't tell her that. And I mean, of course, like, of course, right? Like they're, of course they did that, like this girl, because I could be anyone. I could have been an FBI agent, I'm not. Um, and that killed me to know that like these people are having to pretend like, and so how did like, how did you get around that? So again, I was in a very rural area and, um, when we moved there, the woman who would become my second wife lived literally next door. And okay. then there was nobody on either side of us for a good mile. And so it made it easy in the sense that we put in a gate in the back, right? And I just went back and forth and it didn't raise any suspicions. As far as church goes, 
um, I fulfilled my callings, right? I did, I did what I was supposed to rather than me sit in between Amber and the, if I say her name, you have got to tell me so I can edit it later, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so far I don't know, <laughs> right. Between, uh, between Amber and, and the woman who was my second wife and rather than sit in between them, they would sit next to each other. And I, I shared this story on the last podcast I did, but I'll share it again because I think you might get a kick out of it. I'm elders corn president. And I go in, I get, they call me as I'm practicing plural marriage, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the calling. And, and so I just had a good group of brethren who just loved each other, right? They'd been there for years. They were well-established. So home teaching numbers went through the roof, right? Back before it was called ministering or whatever. And it does so well that they actually call a rep out. Well, a rep says, I want to come talk to your elders corn president in area 70 because the home teaching numbers went up. Now, again, it wasn't because of me. It was because of the work the brethren were putting in, in, in my quorum. So pardon the expression. I hope I don't offend you. But when I get the text from the stake president saying, hey, elder so-and-so wants to meet you to discuss why your home teaching is so successful. I remember both Amber and the other woman who was my wife. I just went, oh, okay. And I remember I looked at him, I went, oh shit, right? Because, you know, you're taught these are representatives from the Lord and they're going to look right through you and they're going to be able to see everything you've done. So I got to stew on this for like two weeks, right? Two weeks, I got to stew on this. And we're, we're making plans, right? Okay, look, this goes bad, you know, and, and it, I'm sure it's going to come out because he's an uh, area 70, right? He's just under an apostle. We're going to, you know, we're just going to have to grin and bear this and then we're going to move, right? That, that's, that's the thought, right? We'll take our Xing and then, and then we're gone. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, I know it sounds silly. I'd already moved to, you know, Maryland and back, right? I don't have a problem pulling that trigger if I have to. I'm like, whatever, to protect my family, we'll do whatever we got to do. I, we'll, we'll get through this. So the day of the interview comes and I'm just sweating bullets. I mean, just, I'm cantankerous at work. I'm sweating bullets so bad. I'm like, get out of my office. Just leave me alone. And I go to the meeting. And I sit down and he sits down and across from me and he's very personable and very nice. And I'm like, here we go. Read my soul. Cause I know you can. And he's asking me, you know, how's this, how's this working? You know, how, how are you getting these kind of results? And I'm like, really, I think I just got a good group of brethren. You know, we do our follow-up interviews. I think that's a lot of it. And he just kind of leans back in his chair. And as he leans back, he, I mean, he's looking me in the eye. I'm like, and here it comes, right? Here it comes. And he just says, Brother David, I feel inspired to tell you that whatever it is you're doing in your personal life, you need to keep doing that. No! Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, I walked out of there and I got home and both the girls were just on the front porch, you know, anticipating what was going to happen. I was sweating it far more than they were sweating it. But I get out and they're like, well, what do you say? And I said, he can't, he said, keep practicing plural marriage. And then that was. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was that. So, yeah, I mean, I, 
I, we never got found out. Um, it was, yeah. And, and again, I know it's not normal, but that's just kind of how it went down. And then she ended up leaving. And I had this crazy idea that I'm just going to forget everything I learned. I'm just going to go back to the LDS church. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm just going to put my head down. And up until about 2019, I was, uh, I was an active member of the LDS church. And then there were some changes, there were some changes made to the temple. And again, I was in a leadership position in the ward I live, live in now that, you know, I was still in the same neighborhood where there was just too many changes. And I just, I had a moment one Sunday morning getting up during COVID or right, right as COVID started, where I just got up and, and we started having some really interesting conversations at home, right? And they were great gospel-centered conversations. And I remember one Sunday morning, I got up to have to go to a meeting on Zoom, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing, right? I'm, I'm not true to who I am. I'm not. And so I, I basically threw in the towel at that point and walked away. But I mean, that would be hard would be hard to go back oh it was it was it was so infuriating right but I, I kept doing this thing where I was like well if if at least there's a temple there right maybe it's not everything but maybe it's enough and maybe this was just my I did all sorts of mental gymnastics to try to make this work right may and and to be fair I, I had I'd seen enough horror shows and fundamentalism that I was super nervous about the idea of going forward right so i was like okay if 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 i can just do this bit of bending over backwards and making it work and it, it just breaks right i mean once you know you know uh, right. and so yeah that's that's kind of that's kind of how it went down and to be fair my wife she, who's just an absolute rock star of a woman she knew that day would come in fact i i remember i never wanted to mourn too much in front of my wife when when my other wife left because I never wanted her to feel like she wasn't enough. So I was like, okay, just do your morning in private. And one night she found me kind of pissing and moaning myself on the, uh, on the deck. And I was like, you know, I'm never doing this again. This is stupid. I'm just going to go back to the LDS church and keep my mouth shut. And she, I, and I'm never doing this ever, ever again. And she just looked at me and she smiled and she said, if we're called to do it again, we're going to do it. And she just turned around, walked back into the, into the house but yeah i mean yeah she's she's awesome she really is but yeah so that's i'm sorry that was a long answer for a short question that's that's kind of how no it's, that's that's that's, that's kind of how we made it work i'm so curious about your second I, I mean you can cut this out did you have an independent second ceiling i did i did okay. yep Yep. We'll, we'll talk oh, yeah. more. I remember, I remember, I remember asking Ann Wild. I, I probably bothered her so much, just constantly being like, who sealed you to Ogden? Who sealed you to Ogden? Who sealed you to Ogden? <laughs> and like every time she would just be like, Christina. Yeah. <laughs> Cause she keeps that very close to her chest. Um, but I've been so obnoxious to her about it. We'll talk. We'll talk when I'm done. If, if you have time, we'll talk for a few minutes when I, when we're done recording. And I'll fill you in on a few more details, but yeah, we basically, I, what it was is I went to Ogden Kraut's work, right? That was the only thing as far as fundamentalism 
that was online that you could readily access, right? About 2008. No, 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 no. Ogden was long dead by then. No, what I, mean, I, was, I thought so, but I, oh, did Kevin? No, no, it was oh. nobody sealed us. What what it was is you. I'm sure you've you've read about it. the The idea of a solemn covenant, where it's basically yeah. like a, a lesser marriage. I shouldn't say marriage. It, it's lesser authority, but it's something right. that'll stay in place until you find proper authority. And that was the idea. That's what we did. And then the idea was, okay, now we got to go find proper authority, right? And so, because it's not like the bishop's going to do it. So, um, or, you know, we can go into the temple. Although I did take my second wife into the temple many, many times. Yep. I, yeah, yeah. I, I was, yeah, no, it was nuts. It was nuts. We'll talk more if you're interested. But anyway, I, yeah, I was a bit bold and a little stupid. Anyway, um, we uh, we did that, and that's how we 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 kind of did that. Why we were trying to find proper authority. Another question I got for you: What's as you go into your research and then you present, right? Do you ever present to to folks who maybe aren't fundamentalists or familiar with fundamentalism? Do you oh, find what what is it you think is the biggest how stereotype or misconception that you fight against or shouldn't even say fight against the the one thing that you illuminate that maybe catches people off guard i mean so most of the people i present to are not don't study more i mean i present at mormon history association quite a bit um but also i present the american academy of religion and people there like they study every religion like they don't they're not familiar with fundamentalist mormonism um actually i've i never presented in front of fundamentalists until at MHA this year, um, uh, David Watson of the AUB Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, came to my panels and I was like, oh, I like, I saw him out of the corner of my eye and I was like, oh, it's the president of the priesthood right there. Um, And it was, I mean, it was, I was presenting on Joseph Musser And so, and he, it was, it was great to be able to, you know, talk to him about the man who he's in priesthood succession succession with. So, um, but that's a rare occurrence. Most people have no idea. Um, Probably the wildest one is misconception, but also what was most shocking is in 2018. Yeah, 2018, I presented um, about women who convert to fundamentalism. Um, oftentimes, like sometimes without their husbands who just join the movement without, some of them leave their husbands to join and some have never been married. And people were shocked that there are women who join this movement. That was shocking to people. Um, or I mean, pe- women who it was their idea in their marriage. Um, that's kind of always the one that people are like, there's no way. Um, but it, I mean, I know, I know these women, I'm not lying. Like I know women, you do too. We all like, I mean, if you're a part, if you're in the world of Mormon fundamentalism, you know women who want to join the movement. Um, and that is that there's a historic precedent for that. Um, so probably that. And then recently I wrote an article on mothers in heaven. Um, and Heavenly Mother is kind of having a moment in LDS Mormonism mm-hmm. where you're not supposed to talk about her. And it just, I mean, Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue, the journal, 
was something of a prophet in his own right and that he had been compiling a special issue on heavenly mother right and it like came out like the week the week after the church said kind of clarified like don't talk about her um and i opened it with the hymn that the aub have Mm -hmm. um oh my mother and a lot of people were really surprised that fundamentalists have a heavenly mother i mean of course they do they have many (laughs) like god's a polygamist like they don't just have one right they have a bunch um and as part of that article i talked about in some groups um there is ordination of women and that was really shocking to a lot of people that fundamentalist women to varying degree and of course this isn't i never sugarcoat polygamy i don't spoilers i know like all your listeners who know me are like we know christina i don't like polygamy um and so kind of this idea that women who are polygamists sometimes get authority in their churches through various means that was really shocking to people so i guess it's usually things dealing with women um that people are just like there's no way that there's no way that women are happy in this um and of course that's not all women i mean warren jeffs exists like a lot of there's a lot of abuse but also there are women who are wanting to be fundamentalist they're always yeah. i mean tell and wild actually want this life yeah no and in fact um and again i'll share with you when when we're off off recording here that's how i came into it it was amber and her best friend studying about stuff and yeah i mean it was I, I avoid, I was like, I, no, 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 but yeah, no. And and I'm glad you said that because one of the, one of the big ones that I encounter all the time, right. No matter who I'm talking to was, is, you know, oh, you're those women must be just beat down and don't get me wrong. There are some, I'm not here to tell you that there's not, but there are a lot of strong women within fundamentalism and, and that's one of the things that that has always kind of bugged me is this idea that that they must be somehow beaten down or or whatever yeah and and through i'm and there's various ways that that's not i mean most fundamentalist groups who do any kind of temple work are doing second anointings women are given particular authority in the second anointing they always have Mm -hmm. um have been um, in that article, I published part of Fred Collier's ordination booklet that talks about he ordained, like w- women were being ordained alongside their husband. Um, and so, I mean, th- that happens. I mean, it's a both and, like both those, and both of those can exist in fundamentalism at the same time. And I think that this is one of the hardest things generally. And in my own tradition, right? I mean, abuse happens in my own tradition, but also I love my priest. Both can be true. Um, and there can be abuse and fundamentalism, but also there can be like really rad stories of women doing cool things. Both of those can be true at the same time. Right. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and I've, I've kind of thought about this a lot is that for the first time ever, um, at least in, in my time as, as a fundamentalist, even one in hiding, I feel like there's an opportunity to talk about things that even mainstream LDS people are hungry for, right? When, when there's a, an apostle from the LDS church that says, we just don't know anything about heavenly mother. 
I'm like, mm, yeah, we do. We, we actually really do, right? I mean, like, it may be uncomfortable for you, but we actually do know those things. And, you know, this idea of, you know, the ordained women movement. I'm like, it was, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of, of historical accounts of Relief Society presidents giving blessings and, and doing those things for, for the sisters. And so it's a weird space I, I sometimes feel that, that fundamentalists occupy in the sense that a lot of the questions that are getting answered now or are begging for answers, I feel like fundamentalism in within LDS circles, I should I should specify that with within those LDS circles, it's fundamentalism who who ultimately always kind of had the answer all along. And and I think it takes yeah, and takes, I mean even something as even something as found. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Keep, nope, keep going. I think there's a delay, that's why. Yeah, no, there's a little bit of a delay. I was just going to say, I, I think we're at a point where we, we can give some of those answers. Now, they're going to be uncomfortable answers. No, there's going to be a lot of LDS people who don't want to hear that. And I don't think that's something we should ever force as fundamentalists. But I don't think there's anything wrong with getting that out there. Yeah, I mean, even something as base level as who's God's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know. <laughs> I mean, and that's a, that's a, that's a hard one. Like, that's a hard one because, you know, as God once was, we have like, the couplet stands um, in the LDS church, the idea of eternal progression stands, the idea that God was once a man, but the big kind of, I mean, my lingering question then is like, all right, well, who's grandpa God? <laughs> like, who's he? Um, and like from fundamentalism, like I know his name's Jehovah um, in some groups. And that's something that, that has an answer historically. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I sometimes feel like as fundamentalists, we, we, we occupy this weird space where certainly from like the more uh, feminist parts of um, the LDS church, there's a lot of answers to be had in fundamentalism. The problem is, is it walks hand in hand with polygamy and it, 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 it can create a lot of, of, cognitive dissidents. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard, it's a hard thing, especially with women's ordination um, and heavenly mother in, in, in Mormon cosmology, <laughs> there is a heavenly mother. She comes with polygamy, right? Mm -hmm. There is, is being ordained a queen and priestess. Historically, that meant polygamy. And if you look at the biggest advocates of, have, of talking about heavenly mother the, i mean the one is eliza snow right i mean she wrote oh my father um eliza snow was like i mean can make an argument that she came up with it right i mean she's the one that like we know this doctrine from first and she was simultaneously one of the biggest advocates of polygamy <laughs> like that that it was a very enmeshed reality um in 19th century mormonism yeah yeah, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting space, and it's it's kind of an interesting time because not only do we have those kind of, of questions being asked, but we also have things like Under the Banner of Heaven, and we have have you know the the one on Netflix where, again, I just feel like we're in this fundamentalist moment where 
we could really step forward now, right? I don't think we have to worry about persecution like we did back in the old days, right? I think certainly if you're abusive, you should have something to fear. But if if you're not abusive and you're living, and, and I'm saying this from an outsider's perspective, an alternative lifestyle, well, there's a ton of alternative lifestyles out there now. And, and I feel like we're in a spot where maybe it's time we take that step forward and just let some of that knowledge out. Yeah, I mean, that was our, I mean, that was the big thing that, I mean, there was multiple avenues of approaching like decriminalization. Um, but that was the big one that we approached it with is like, what is there to gain by continuing to force people into the shadows? Like, what are we gaining by doing this? Um, polygamy has been illegal for over 60 years and Warren Jeff still existed, right? So, and the great irony, if there was ever someone that we were going to prosecute for polygamy, it would have been him. And we didn't, Yeah, he was not prosecuted for. So what is it that our polygamy laws have done? They have, they've caused a lot of hurt for people. Um, and they have pushed a religion into the shadows and they've created a spectacle. And, and I wouldn't say, you know, I don't know. And maybe I'm looking at it too simplistic. I mean, you're, you've certainly done your share of research. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I can at least make a, a, I think a fairly compelling argument that the whole reason Warren Jeffs was able to do what he was able to do was because they had to live in the shadows. Had that been out in the open, right? Had they not been marginalized, maybe that's a different story. Maybe not. But that short Creek raid did nothing but force that into the shadows and then gave a dictator and a tyrant the opportunity to say, see, they, the world is coming for us. So we have to be isolated. And in that isolation, he could do all sorts of bad stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what happens when you take a group of people and you look at them and say, you can't go to the police and you're not lying because there's a precedent for what happens when you do. Um, it, it will not end. I mean, there's audio of Warren Jeffs teaching children about the raid, the 53 raid. Like he actually did this. Um, and there is something, there's a lot to lose when people are abused, but can't go to the police because they'll lose their children. Like a lot, there is a lot to lose there. Um, but there's also a lot to lose when you have people whose marriages aren't legal and their children can't get health insurance, right? I mean, there, there's only, there's a lot to lose by yeah. keeping this system in the shadows. Yep. So tell me about that process that you helped out with, and I can't remember the the name of the bill again, HB something, if I remember correctly. SB yep. SB 102. So when you, did you, were you one of the ones that got to go talk to lawmakers about it? Yeah, I talked to uh, multiple reps and senators, and I also testified at the House Committee and the Senate. Um, not the Senate, I'm sorry. Yeah. I testified at two of the hearings, so I don't know which ones those were. Uh, one of them was the House Judiciary. So anyway, uh, yeah, I talked to a lot of reps. Um, it was a wild experience. I mean, as like a Gentile woman being like, let me tell you why polygamy needs to be decriminalized. Um, but I remember one of the like, <laughs> one of the just kind of, I mean, there was two moments that really stuck out to me. The first was, a representative he 
I was explain. I like stated my case. I only had a certain amount of time. And he was like, oh, polygamy had its heyday, but it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's like, what? Um, what? And then the other weird one, I went in um, to meet with a rep with a polygamist woman. And this is really highlighted that people imagine polygamist women only in prairie dresses, right? So like whatever they're imagining of polygamy was, it was certainly not the woman who I was with. And the person was like, well, if you would ever just meet a polygamist woman, <laughs> I was like, I'm sitting next to one. And I, I told the rep, I was like, I'm sitting by one. And so she like shared her story about why this mattered to her and why she was coming forward as like a polygamous woman. Um, but it was just like this weird moment of like, yeah, I do know about polygamy, <laughs> like pretty well, actually. Um, I mean, but also at the same time, it was very hard hearing people. I mean, there were some people on the other side that there were a lot of people on the other side who I, I deeply respect, um, women who left really harmful, dangerous situations, abusive situations. And there were men who left really dangerous situations. And so there's a lot of people, there were a lot of people on the other side that I respect deeply. Um, but then there were also people who are just like concerned citizens. And I'm like, I don't, no, <laughs> I don't right. know what your goal is being a concerned citizen. Um, but that, I mean, one of the things that was hard was having to sit and hear the really hard stories um, being on the other side of the room, knowing that you're going to testify against people who've had very traumatic experiences. And wow. my, I mean, my only answer to that, my, my own, and it's the answer that I'll continue to give. Um, and my only answer is you had all these traumatic experiences while polygamy was illegal. Right. Right. No, you're, you're right. And, and the legal status, the legal status protect yeah and and that's always the hard part right is because you never want to make somebody's experience feel minimalized or or any of those other things so at the same time you got to kind of you know just call it like you see it that that would have been hard so do you think the bill passed was there anyone that voted for the bill that you didn't think would vote for the bill you think you guys changed anybody's oh, mind? Yes. I mean, it, oh yeah, it was, it was unanimous in the house, which was wild. It was wild to like see a unanimous vote. Um, and then in the Senate, only three people voted no. One of them we knew would vote no. We were never going to change his mind. Um, he ran HB 214, which was the bill that made bigamy a violent crime um, a, year, a year before. So we knew that he was going to go that way. Um, there were a couple that I, that we didn't know, and you could see at least two of them. I remember pretty distinctly watching that as the vote was happening and I could see them like looking around at what their like colleagues were doing. Um, and once there was momentum, you know, of this mm -hmm. is clearly a landslide, people started, all of them kind of did it. Um, but it was three people voted no. One of them actually wasn't present and then like called in and said that they want their vote to be counted as a yes. So it ended up being only two, which is wild, um, voted against it. And I think the reason that is we ran it as a harm reduction issue. And when I talked to 
um, polygamous people, fundamentalist people. Um, this is something that is hard to hear, but I think it's important. Um, people don't care about fundamentalist religious freedom. They never have. The religious freedom of polygamists has never mattered in the United States. That is hard to hear, but it's true. So if you argue about, if you argue this based on religious freedom, that's not going to get you anywhere. People have heard that argument before. This isn't, you know, you're not going to walk in and recite the first amendment and someone's going to be like, wow, I haven't thought about that. They have, they don't care. <laughs> um, the other one is talking about alternative lifestyles. People don't care. People are going to be like, well, polygamy is different. You are the slippery slope, unfortunately, right? Polygamy is the slippery slope that I've warned everyone about. And so people won't care. Um, Polygamous and fundamentalist people, what, what, what people care about is how this is actually going to help stop abuse, how this is going to help support women, how this is support, and the harm reduction effort, the harm reduction lens of looking at polygamy is the winner for this issue. It is, it is what will ultimately, I hope, not only decriminalize nationally, but it will also be what legalizes polygamy. Do you ever see it being legalized? I mean, that's my hope. I know, I know that this is a hot topic. I know a lot of fundamentalists want it decriminalized, but not legalized because they want the state out of me. I, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, I would like it legal. I know that the barrier to that is it would take a revision of the tax code. It would take a revision of how health insurance, it would take a lot of work. Um, so of course the first goal is national decriminalization. I do think that's going to happen one day. Um, I think it has to, polygamists, shocking don't just live in utah shut um, up really so I, I know i know i i when i found out that there were polygamists in arizona i didn't yeah no the people think they're all in utah um i know i wait until you hear that short creek was in arizona um yeah so i mean when when people hear i know um, but I think, I think that'll happen. I think legalization has to happen when, I mean, I would like it to, I want women to be able to get alimony if they leave. I want children to be able to have health insurance. Um, I want men to be responsible for their wives, um, to provide health insurance, to provide care for their children. Um, I, I want there to be a responsibility that comes with living the principle, like a tangible temporal responsibility. And I, I don't think that would Warren Jeffs had 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 have 78 wives if he had to provide health insurance no. for every single one? No, no, he would not. No, you're you're 100% correct. And this is where, like you said, that most fundamentalists are always libertarians. I'll say this too about libertarians. We all hedge a little bit, right? And this is one of those issues where I tend to hedge, right? And go, go a little bit more like okay maybe not just decriminalization but legalization is the route because i have six kids right four me and my wife had and then we adopted a set of twins i love my kids with my whole heart the thought of having to have my kids sit, not call me dad breaks my heart likewise Likewise, if you're a dirtbag and you're practicing this from a dirtbag standpoint, no, your ass needs to be on the hook. You need to pay. 
point blank. Yes. And so that's that's at minimum. At minimum, your child should have health insurance. At minimum, <laughs> like at maximum, you shouldn't be practicing it, right? But I like I know I know a lot. I mean, I know people who don't have birth certificates, right? Yeah. Um, granted, that's very rare. Um, but I know people who don't have health insurance. A lot of people. Um, and that that's hard when you get sick, right? I mean, that's hard. And we like that's a whole different debate about how health insurance has to operate in this country. Like it's a whole different thing. Um, but it's tough that there are no action, there's no there are absolutely no barriers for anything of having a hundred children. If you want to have a hundred children, I don't care, but I want you to be financially responsible for them. That's not, I don't know. I don't know why that's radical, but somehow it is. <laughs> I, I don't think it's radical at all. I, I tend to, I tend to agree with you on that a lot. I think that, that if, and, and everyone says, well, what health insurance company is going to cover that? Well, if there's one thing I found out about capitalism, it's very resilient. If there's a market to be gained from, it'll find a way to do it, right? And so I tend to think that, you know what? Maybe it starts as a cooperative and maybe it becomes full-fledged insurance. But all I know is that usually capitalism will find a way to, to serve a, 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 a customer base. And so I, I yeah, I'm with you. I'm like- and I'm, I'm like and even in the decriminalization standpoint, like as someone who has kids, like everyone I know who has kids wants their kids to feel safe calling 911 if there's an emergency. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's true that we continue to live in a situation where fundamentalists don't feel comfortable calling 911 if their child gets hurt. Like that continues to happen. Um, and not from my perspective, the only way to stop that was decriminalizing polygamy so people could call 911 without fear. Right. Like that was, and I think that that is the, I think that is the game changing argument, not only because it is compelling and it's an interesting way to look at it, but it's true. We know from nonprofits that when polygamy was decriminalized, the number of people seeking housing went up, the number of people seeking um, mental health resources went up, the number of people reporting violent crime went up. The number of people seeking food went up. We know by the numbers that that happened. It is factually true that people sought resources from nonprofits and the government when polygamy was decriminalized. We have the numbers. Yeah. When when the when the vote came in, I where were you at? Were you in the in the state house when the vote came went through? Oh yeah, I was in. I was at. I was in the Senate rafters watching it. Tell me what that was like. Tell me what it was like to sit there with the people that you've devoted your academic life to as that vote came down. Well, <laughs> um, as I'm like getting emotional. Um, so I was sitting next to um, Vicki Val and Alina Darger, um, who, I mean, the people who, the people who decriminalized polygamy, like, yes, it's Deidre Henderson and Laurie Snow, that's true. Um, but the people who decriminalized polygamy are Shirley Draper at Cherished Families and Vicki, Val, Alina, and Joe Darger. Like, those are the people who put in the work, who, who I mean, Joe's family, they've, 
been a public face of polygamy forever. And surely she was, for those who don't know, FLDS, she's a social worker, um, and she runs a nonprofit in Short Creek that does incredible work for people who are in and people who are trying to leave. And she's devoted her life to this. Um, so seeing what this meant to them was really a big deal. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I became convinced of this issue when Roy died. Um, it's why I did it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I'm generous toward decriminalization of things. Um, but I, but this one was for Roy. It, that really mattered to me. So when the vote came in, um, like I knew I had done it. <laughs> like I knew, I, I blamed, I blamed the state for killing Roy. I, I mean, Warren, you know, Warren did it by extension, right? It was the state, it was the LDS church. It was a lot of institutions. Um, and I knew that there was a tiny bit of hope that the government couldn't create a Warren. And so that was, that was a really big deal to me. Wow. You know, I, I have more questions, but I think we're going to end there. Um, I just want to wrap up by just telling you, I appreciate your work so much. Um, as a guy who's kind of sat back and been a low-key fundamentalist for a lot of years, I always found your work compelling. I just want to thank you for what you've done. I mean, it's huge and it's important work. And um, yeah, I just, I think you're awesome. Is there anything else you want to say in closing? Um, I would just want to tell people, sorry, I got there. <laughs> um, I would just want to tell people that if you, I mean, I always want to plug church families. If you're someone who's wanting to give to a nonprofit who is being people, um, especially from the FLDS, check them out. Um, read dialogue. It's an open access journal, meaning you do not need a subscription to be able to read it. You're wanting to read stuff about Mormon history and you don't know where to start there. And then also give your money to benchmark books. They're like the only bookseller I know of in Utah that has a whole section on fundamentalism. Like people, like prophets go and drop off their revelations by the box full and you can buy them. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, there's some really great places on the ground that are trying to tell this history. Um, the journal Mormon history is also rad from the MHA. Um, I just, I would love to see more fundamentalist people actively involved in the historical community. Awesome. Well, Dr. Christina Rossetti, you're awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All Thanks right. for having me. Hey, would you be willing to come back on at another time too? Yeah. I would love Why to not? have you back on. So, all right. Well, everyone, uh, we'll uh, say goodbye till next time.